The ongoing war in Syria, the never-ending Israeli-Palestinian conflict, terrorist bombings in Afghanistan, ISIS attacks in Europe and Canada, civil war in Libya and Yemen. The United States alone has 450,000 troops stationed overseas today, often in many of these hot spots. Between terrorism and wars, the world certainly appears more violent than ever. Or is it? The reality is, there are fewer armed conflicts worldwide than at any point in human history. But to many people, it may not feel that way. And that's a perception gap. I'm Samantha Lane Perfoss, and this is Perception Gaps by the Christian Science Monitor. So, not only are there fewer wars and fewer state conflicts and fewer terrorist attacks, but when there are wars, there are also fewer deaths. Max Roser of the publication Our World and Data presents what he calls an empirical perspective on war and peace. His research shows that, contrary to popular belief, we were much more violent in the past. And since 1945, the absolute number of war deaths has been on the decline. As he puts it, although wars are still fought, the world is now more peaceful than ever. We'll look at some of the reasons why wars are less deadly in today's episode. We'll also take a closer look at gaps in our perception of war. The truth? Most of us have no idea what war looks like. Pew Research Center studied this so-called military-civilian gap, and they found that 84% of modern-era veterans say the American public has little to no understanding of military life and 71% of the American public agrees. So why do we have such misperceptions when it comes to war? Not only about its prevalence, but also what's at stake for those who fight them. Well, there's always going to be wars somewhere, and it's certainly not zero now. And reporters will go to where the wars are, and so they'll always be on the front page as bloody as ever and as horrible as ever. Joshua Goldstein is an emeritus professor of international relations at American University in Washington, D.C. In 2011, he wrote a book called Winning the War on War, which looks at war's declining nature through time. Here's our conversation. What is the status of war around the world right now? War is in a low period in the last 30 years since the Cold War ended, and it had a spike upward with the war in Syria, which is now drifting back downward again. So in historical context, we're at a low point in war. Why does it feel like wars are a lot worse today if they're actually not? If you're in the middle of a war right now today, it's as horrible as any war in history. But the difference is, and this is what the reporting doesn't get, Fewer people are in the middle of wars right now. Whole regions of the world that used to have multiple wars, like South America, Central America, now are at peace. 
and whole categories of war that used to be just devastating to large numbers of people just aren't happening anymore. Why do you think that war is less fatal now than it was in the past? The big thing in this decrease of war fatalities has been the wars between large national regular uniformed armies. Those were the big wars that took the biggest toll in the past. India versus Pakistan, Iran versus Iraq. Um, And those wars used to happen all the time, usually several of them going on at once in the world. But nowadays, they've almost completely stopped. The last one was the several weeks when the U.S. and the Iraqi armies were fighting, you know, 15 years ago. And so eliminating that whole category, national army, one on the other, each one armed with tanks, airplanes, uh, missiles, submarines, and all that stuff, um, they're not fighting each other anymore. So the character of war is changing, and it's getting smaller scale in that way. And, and that's the biggest factor going on. Now, I think that also UN peacekeeping has been a factor in the civil wars because peacekeepers have been able to come in when there's some effort to get a ceasefire and to end a war. The data show that having peacekeepers there really helps because most ceasefires break down, most wars sputter on and off for a long time, and a lot of people die. But with UN peacekeepers, it's much more feasible to, to end a war and keep it ended. And then underlying it is the rise of economic development and prosperity in the world. Poverty breeds wars. And again, kind of below the radar where people aren't aware of it, there's been a big improvement in poverty in the world. And I think that's been an underlying factor of fewer wars. Do we think that war is more violent today in part because of the way the media covers it? Is that different than in past decades? Yeah, absolutely, because in past decades, large numbers of people died horrible deaths in war, and the Western public never heard about it. But now it's much more likely that someone will have a cell phone, someone will take video, the video will go to global news organizations, and everyone will hear about it. So before Vietnam, war was really distant and did not make it back to the home front, and when people came home, they didn't talk about it. And Vietnam was the first American war that was on our TV screens, in the living room, but now it's gone way beyond that, where wars, even relatively small wars in distant parts of the world, come right into our uh, social media every day. Joshua and I talked for a while about how wars are covered nowadays. I brought up the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and how they are the longest and most expensive wars in U.S. history. One of the latest calculations shows that so far, we've spent $5.6 trillion on Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. So if we're spending this much money and the wars last so much longer, it's no wonder it feels like war fatalities and violence have also increased. It feels counterintuitive to think otherwise, but that's Joshua's point. There's a misperception there. Yeah, there's a disjuncture between how violent wars are and how much they cost. Levels of violence have gone down dramatically in recent decades, but the levels of military spending really haven't. 
Most of the military spending goes to maintaining large military forces, and they're about as large as they've ever been in the world, with the exception of nuclear weapons, which are now smaller. But the number of people killed is a lot smaller. So, yeah, these wars have been much more expensive than you would expect for the actual physical size of them. You mentioned nuclear warfare a little bit, and I just wonder if, you know, there's a lot of talk about who's got their finger on the button or finger on the trigger. Do you think that um, nuclear warfare changes the the perspective or conversation when we think about war? Nuclear war is completely terrifying and is something to, to be worried about, but there's always something to worry about. And nuclear weapons themselves have decreased since the 1980s by three quarters. So we're down at about a quarter the level that we were then because of the United States and the Soviet Union destroying and getting rid of our weapons. And in fact, we've been for a couple of decades burning nuclear warheads from the Soviet Union, the old ones, in our nuclear reactors in the U.S., so powering light bulbs around the United States with them. People don't know this. And um, because nuclear war is so terrifying and because there's still plenty of nuclear weapons that completely ruin the world. Um, so they don't realize that actually the numbers are going in the right direction. It's just we have a lot more work to do on that. For the wars that do exist and the wars that are currently happening around the world, is there hope or where do you see hope for peace kind of based on this trajectory that the numbers are sort of going in the right direction? The numbers are hopeful, but I would never put my hope just in numbers because Somebody's going to argue about how you're counting things. But the big things that I think can't be argued with are the fact that the national armies aren't fighting each other and haven't anywhere for 15 years. And along with that whole categories like tank battles and naval battles just haven't been happening. That's a big cause for hope. And then we haven't talked about this, but geographically, the area of the world affected by war is shrinking. I mentioned Latin America but also um, the Balkans and Southern Africa, and Southeast Asia, places that used to have a lot of wars and now are completely at peace, um, or almost completely at peace. That's a cause for hope. And so the, the remaining wars in the world are now limited to a, an arc from Central Africa up through the Middle East and over to Afghanistan, which is... You know, it's a considerable area, but it's about one-sixth of the world that lives there. So five-sixths of the world lives in places that are not having wars and haven't for a while. And I think that's quite hopeful. Joshua said another area that brings him hope is the UN peacekeeping. He said 100,000 peacekeepers are deployed in the world. And data show that their presence works and they are generally effective in keeping the peace. Now, I'm going to let our next guest introduce himself because it's a mouthful and I simply couldn't do him justice. I'm Adrian Lewis. I'm a professor at the University of Kansas. I'm also a retired soldier. I spent 20 years in the United States Army. I served as an enlisted man, a sergeant, and an officer. I served with the uh, 9th Infantry Division. Uh, my primary MOS was uh, infantry. I also served with the 2nd Ranger Battalion up at uh, Fort Lewis in Washington. 
So Adrian is a retired soldier, and now he studies war as an academic. I asked, how has he seen war change through the years, and what has made it less violent? In World War II, uh, 70 million people were killed. At the end of the war, we developed nuclear capabilities, which we used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then what we do is enter the nuclear age. When the Korean War starts, we had the potential to stop the Chinese using nuclear weapons, but the Truman administration decided not to do that. In other words, we entered the period that we call artificial limited war. The word artificial is important because we can always remove it. In other words, we might go back to total war. We live in an era where the nuclear potential still exists, right? but we, are, we put artificial restraints on the conduct of war. So when you take a look at the Korean War, what we did was we put artificial restraints on it. It wasn't just us. Stalin, Mao Zedong uh, also put restraints on the conduct of the war. Right? Everybody had fresh in mind the 70 million people, particularly the Russians who lost 30 million people. Everybody had that fresh in mind. So we were trying to step back from the brink and we fought limited wars in Korea. We fought another limited war in, in Vietnam. Uh, both of those at various times had the potential to escalate. So we've been in this era that we call artificial limited war. And we are still in it today because these nuclear arsenals still exist. So it almost sounds like because we all know that we have the technological capability, it's actually keeping us in check because we don't want to repeat sort of that massive carnage that's happened in the past. That's right. I, I, I think that's accurate. We have the capability to destroy a city the size of Chicago. So with, with such capabilities, yeah, we, we need to be very careful. The big danger out there is smaller nations or terrorist groups getting nuclear weapons. We, we, we try very hard to not have the proliferation of these weapons around the planet because the more people that have them, the greater their chance that something, something will happen and they will be used again. A little side note. His point about proliferation is why some people are concerned that the U.S. is withdrawing from the Reagan-era arms control treaty with Russia. Even though we have reduced nuclear weapons, the prospect of reversing that trend is what has some people scared. Let's shift gears here. I asked Adrian about the civilian-military gap that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Most Americans don't really know what war is like or what it means to be in the military. Why is that? We know, we know why that is, and the, the uh, armed forces are, are, are concerned about this uh, issue. Only 1% of the uh, American people serve in the armed forces of the United States. 1%. When you, when you think about that, the vast majority of Americans have no association with the armed forces, uh, not, none whatsoever. And then when you add to that, that you know, in the Pentagon, they talk about a family-owned and operated business. 60% of the people in the uh, U.S. Army and the other services are the sons and daughters of other servicemen, right? So, so when, you, when you actually take a look at it then, uh, the vast majority of Americans have no idea what their armed forces uh, uh, do. They never see them. They don't interact with them. So yeah, yeah, they are a separate culture. Uh, they are physically separated, and 
The American people pay for it, but uh, they have very little idea what their money's going for. What are some of the biggest things that you think civilians misunderstand or are just simply unaware of when it comes to war or being in the armed forces? I would say the biggest thing is they don't understand what we do around the world. Right? We provide security on the planet right? from completely one, from one end of it to the other end of, the, of these things. At the end of World War II, we created these mutual security agreements such as NATO, and we're the largest player in those, uh, in those agreements. So we provide security around the planet, which is a good thing for humanity on planet Earth. Some, some of the things people worry about it is uh, dismantling the security systems that the United States put in place at the end of World War II. They have worked. They have worked. Uh, you know, you can't find 50 years of peace in Europe uh, before the period of, uh, the, that we created NATO. So these systems have worked. We want to make them stronger. We don't want to weaken them. So we often hear a lot, you know, people saying, I support the armed forces, I support the military. What does that actually mean? And how, how can we do that in sort of a practical way? I can remember, remember the days after the Vietnam Wars when when we were not liked, when uh, when the uh, U.S. Army, uh, when we were told to not leave post in uniform, when we were told to grow our hair long so that uh, we fit into civilian society better, I I, uh, I can remember a very different time, and that didn't turn around until uh, the uh, Reagan administration. It didn't really turn around to after Operation Desert Storm. Uh, in uh, in Iraq, and then we had the uh, the parade welcoming the soldiers home from Iraq, and then they had a, a parade to welcome the Vietnam veterans home who had never been welcomed home. So, so from from my perspective, uh, watching this transition uh, from being greatly disliked and disrespected uh, after the Vietnam period to, uh, to where we are right now. That's, 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 that's a huge change. It's an important change. And so I like hearing that. I'm, you know, I'm never going to argue with <laughs> hearing people say, gee, I support the armed forces of the United States. You know, people don't realize all the things that we do in various parts of the world. Small forces doing little things uh, in some place like Africa can make a big difference. Let me give you uh, an example. If I give, if I give some people a, uh, in, in smaller countries in Africa, let's say, if I give them weapons, uh, then, then they tend to want to prey upon the people. Right? They now have the means to do that. But, but if the United States spends a few bucks, if they give them weapons, then put them in a uniform, then give them a barracks, and then give them some training, and talk to them and teach them about professionalism, then they can learn that their job is to protect the people, not to prey upon the people. Then they can become a national asset as opposed to a national problem. It's, it's a small investment for the United States, and it can make a huge, huge difference in various parts of the world. I think there's a civil military divide that exists today, and that's because we have an all-volunteer military. So it has become an increasingly less common experience among larger swaths of society. 
Elliot Ackerman is a novelist whose books have all related to conflict in the Middle East and Afghanistan. He's also a former Marine who served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. I asked him to share a bit of his story and why he decided to enter the military. I was an officer, so I wanted a job when I got out of college where whether I was good at my job or bad at my job really mattered. Uh, and one thing the military gives you is a lot of responsibility at a young age. Um, you know, I wanted to do someone to give back to my country and serve my country. And I was also probably one of those kids who never stopped playing with his G.I. Joes. And I just had this like innate interest in the military that, that never subsided. Did you feel like it met your expectations or did it surprise you, sort of what you thought it was going to be like and what it was when you entered? Um, I think it exceeded my expectations in so much as I came in to the military in 1998, meaning I started the ROTC program I was in that would take me through college. And so while I was an ROTC student in college, September 11th happened, and then uh, I graduated right when the Iraq war was beginning. So I say it exceeded my expectations because I came in thinking, you know, maybe I'll do a deployment and, you know, who knows if I'm lucky, maybe we'll get to do something real in the world. Um, but chances are it'll just be a peacetime deployment, and I wound up going in and fighting in pretty significant actions in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but the whole world changed in the time I was in the military. What did you learn in Iraq or Afghanistan about the nature of war that you feel like most Americans would find surprising or that you yourself found surprising? I think what most people who've never experienced war might find surprising is how boring war is, how actually nothing much happens happening most of the time. Um, you know, if you watch movies like Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or Apocalypse Now, you would think that every time you walked outside the wire, meaning your base, all hell was breaking loose. People were shooting at you. Things were blowing up. And I would say those films, if you were to take a seven-month deployment for a bunch of Marines and were to distill, to distill everything that happens over seven months, it would probably be one of those films. But it takes seven months for all of that stuff to happen. So I think that is something most people don't understand about war. You know, and frankly, you know, when you're in the middle of a firefight and you're being shot at, how most of the time you're just trying to figure out where they're shooting at you from, that you can't see each other most of the time, that it's actually often this just huge game of hide and seek and the confusion that comes with that. But I, I would say, you know, most of the time being at war is you're you're sitting around, you're going about your business, you're doing your job, and then you know, an IED blows up and you're in an ambush and it's, you know, an hour or two that's very intense and someone's been hurt and you have to deal with that and you have to deal with what's going on and, you know, and getting to safety and dealing with the threat you're, you're, you're experiencing. Um, and that happens. And then two weeks pass and nothing happens and then something else happens. So it's sort of these, these strings of events. Um, and then you can also have experiences. I fought in the 2004 Fallujah battle. You know, and that was a very high-intensity uh, experience and uh, indifferent than I think what many people experienced in these wars, and that it was a set-piece battle, and there have been very few of those. Do you think that Americans would benefit from having a better understanding of war, and why or why not? I think Americans would benefit from having a more direct tie with their military because it would make them aware of what it means to go to war. And I think the more and more our military becomes a separate caste, a separate warrior caste in U.S. society, it means that most Americans don't understand the 
significance of what it means to decide whether or not to remain at peace or to go to war, or what it means when we send our troops overseas. And I think it also accentuates the gap that exists in terms of how Americans perceive themselves and how Americans are perceived abroad, because so often we don't really understand what's being done in our names abroad. And what do you think could sort of help bridge that gap? Um, I, think a, I think a draft. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very much for a draft, some type of national public service that's linked to the military. I think we have an all-volunteer force, and you want to retain the professionalism of that force. But I think that having some percentage of that force, 5%, 10% that's drafted, would make it so every American has skin in the game, even though they or their son or daughter might not be drafted. They know that that's a possibility. I feel like when you hear the word draft, it's a bad word, and it has a lot of I like agree. negative connotations. And I feel like people even like start to panic or get anxious or be like, "No, we absolutely couldn't do that." Is some of that just a misunderstanding of like what war is like? Well, I think people panic because they think, "Well, if there's a draft, then I will be forced to go to war." And I think it's actually some of the difference. If there's a draft, will be a country that's more likely to remain at peace because it will make it far more difficult for us to go to war. And right now we're living in a society where it's become too easy for us to go to war. It's become too easy to do what we're doing right now, which is we've, we've been waging wars for 17 years, and we've done it with an all-volunteer military, and Americans haven't had to pay for it because we've done it through deficit spending. Uh, and is, you know, is that the type of country we, wanna, we live in, and is that representative of our values? What have you noticed to be some of the consequences or aftermath of war for veterans when they come home. You know, you hear about PTSD a lot, veterans coming back totally shell-shocked or just unable to integrate. Do you feel like that's the reality? And when you talk about PTSD, I think there's a type of PTSD that's the very acute PTSD that we'll think we think about with, you know, flashbacks, nightmares, and that's a real thing. But let's table that for just a second. Then there's a sort of another type of PTSD, which I think in some ways is more insidious and affects a lot more uh, veterans. Uh, and allow me to explain, you know, I think for any person to be happy, anyone, you have to have a sense of purpose in your life. And to give you a very simple example, you know, there's a man, a man works a job, and he puts, puts food on his table, his children go to school, they have a better life than him, that's his sense of purpose. You know, I think you could say that, you know, purpose is like the drug that induces happiness in our lives. So when you go to war at 19 or 20 years old, your experience is, you know, you're sent to, let's say, a remote Afghan hilltop or a hellhole in Iraq. And you have a relative, but you'll have a relatively, your sense of purpose will be this relatively clear job, which is to tactically hold the hill, make this, make this uh, square block safe. And you'll be doing it with people who have probably become some of your very best friends. And that's actually a very, it's a very intense sense of purpose. And I think you wind up, again, you wind up developing almost a dysfunctional relationship with purpose. And you do it for a few years and you maybe do a few deployments, but then you, you know, you decide the war's over and you come home. And now you have to, to be happy, you have to repurpose yourself. And so you look around and you see what's out there. And, you know, maybe it's, you're going to, maybe you're going to go back to college or, you know, go get a job at Home Depot or you know, sell real estate or something like that, and there's this depression. Um, and I don't think that's just specific to the veteran. I think you see this with professional athletes. You see this with, you know, artists who've achieved 
very early great success. You know, I think anyone who has ascended to the mountaintop has to reckon with the descent. Um, and I think that is an affliction and something veterans struggle with um, that is a, often gets wrapped up into PTSD. And we can call it PTSD or not, but it's, it, it's a real issue is that how do you repurpose yourself when you come home? I thought Elliot's insight into the soldier's experience of coming home was really eye-opening. I tried to envision my own life, and I asked myself, how would I feel if I felt that nothing I did could live up to the experiences I had as a 19-year-old? How would I find my own sense of purpose? How would I not feel lost? Thinking about the veteran experience in this way could help as we think about how to better support our troops when they come home. Before we close, I wanted to return to my conversation with Elliot. He talked about what it feels like to come home and reunite with friends and loved ones. Those interactions are key, and it's important for us to think about how we interact with our veterans when they come home. I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, I can never imagine what it was like over there. I can never imagine you've been in combat. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like. And, uh, and when people usually say that to me, I think they're trying, they're trying to be nice and they're trying to be deferential. Um, but it's actually a very disempowering thing to hear. Uh, and I say it's disempowering because I remember who I was before I went to the war. And if I've had some experience that someone at home can never imagine, it means I've been, not only have I been changed, but I've been changed in a way that's inaccessible to the people who knew me before. So there's a part of me is inaccessible. And if that change has taken place, in some respects, it means I never get to go back to being the person I was before. It means I never get to come home. And, you know, I tell people too, and I, and I believe this, is like, you can imagine it. Sure you can. You know, like, have you ever lost someone that you loved? Have you ever had something... So, violent happened, you've been in a car accident, you've been really scared, you can imagine it. And if you can imagine, you make those efforts to imagine and realize that my experience is probably not that different than your experience. Uh, the specifics might be different because it's war, but the loss and the feelings of you know fear and what you have to overcome are not that any difference. You know, then I actually get to come home in a way that I won't if I'm just cut off and people don't engage with that experience. So I think it's really important for all of us to engage. listening to this episode. And I want to use this moment to say thank you to those who serve in the armed forces. While we may not understand the depth and complexities of what you do, we hope you know that you are appreciated and valued. And we hope you'll trust us enough to share your experiences so we can better understand and support you. We're getting close to the end of our series, so if you haven't already, please send us a note. Let us know your thoughts and whether or not you think we should continue. You can email me at podcast at csmonitor.com. And I want to give a quick thanks to everyone who helped make this episode happen. My producer, Dave Scott, our studio engineers, Morgan Anderson, Ian Blockier, Tori Silver, Jeff Turton, and Tim Malone, 
Original sound design by Noel Flatt and Morgan Anderson. And a special thanks to all my volunteer editors, Mark Sappenfield, Amelia Newcomb, Mark Trumbull, Andy Bickerton, Greg Fitzgerald, and Owen O'Carroll. And I'm Samantha Lane Perfoss. Thanks for listening to Perception Gaps. This podcast was produced by the Christian Science Monitor. Copyright 2018.